Corinthians 13. Our, our world, as you probably know, I think I've heard it a couple times, uh, we've mentioned the song in, in, in passing, uh, Love Makes the World Go Around. I've heard that a couple times, I think, even just the last few weeks. Uh, our world loves love. However, the love that the world enjoys uh, is merely, it's merely emotional, right? It's based upon temporary things. Uh, worldly love or just natural love that we all have. Uh, typically, we love things when it's convenient, uh, when it's easy, and when it is necessary to be shown. In a word, uh, worldly love, um, unbiblical love, uh, is very selfish, is very self-centered. Uh, worldly love costs nothing, and a love that costs nothing is also worth nothing, as we would have to argue. However, the kind of love that leaps from the Bible and, of course, from 1 Corinthians 13 uh, is a holy love. It's a different kind of love. Uh, Christian love is costly. The love of Christ, as we sang, is free. It's boundless. And yet, though it's free, it costs us everything, doesn't it? The loveliness of Christ has captured our hearts to, to love Him and to trust Him by faith. And yet now we love Him knowing that He loves us. Uh, heat is essential to the nature of fire as love is essential to the nature of a Christian. What I mean is love is supposed to be kind of the crown jewel of a Christian. It's supposed to mark us, right? They know we're Christians by our love. And God's love, as I said, is a holy love. It's otherworldly. It's we know that God is love from 1 John, and the nature of who He is challenges our ideas, our definitions, our failings in love, and reminds us of our need to be transformed more and more to the image of Christ. If you've been like me, I hope uh, that 1 Corinthians 13, uh, it, like I said, it's a very popular wedding text. It's read at a lot of uh, weddings, and it's very sweet. But if you're reading it and you're hearing I hope you're feeling like me, it's very, very punchy. Uh, it hurts. It's convicting. It's very, it's a great wedding text, but man, that's, this is hard. This is a difficult kind of love. And I hope you're seeing that the true nature of love is found uh, in the heart of God. And that's what we are called to reflect because of the work of Christ. A man named Thomas Goodwin wrote this, that Christ is love covered in flesh. And as you look at this passage by simply Doing this, I'll do this for I want you to see something. If you look at your, your, uh, your text and you place the word love with the word Christ, you will see who is the fulfillment of this passage. Let me just read you a couple. Christ is patient and kind. Christ does not love, I'm sorry, Christ does not envy or boast. Christ is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He can go on and on and on. It's convicting. It's like, man, Jesus really is those things. Likewise, if you fill in your name in these texts, you will see like me that you fall short in many ways. Let's just do a couple together. Kale is patient and kind. Kale does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. Boy, I wish those were all true. <laughs> those are just not. Likewise, brothers, even more challenging, what if we did something like this? What if we replaced the name of our church in this passage? Union Baptist Church is patient and kind. They do not envy or boast. They are not arrogant or rude. 
They don't insist on their own way. Union Baptist is not irritable or resentful. Do you think that is true? That's the goal, isn't it? Isn't that difficult? So I hope as you're reading this text that you're like me and you're finding yourself thinking, man, I, I just need more of Christ. And I want our church to be full of the love that God has for us and the biblical definition of love in this text. So as we walk through, I hope you'll see the love of Christ more and we'll become more like him together. So starting in verse 5, like I said, we're doing verse 5, not verse 4. Uh, love is not rude. So love does not act, your, your Bible might say, unbecomingly. Uh, so love is inappropriate, right? It's not rude. It's, uh, love is fit for the occasion, so to speak. Uh, in a word, love cares about manners, right? Love has a, a politeness to it. It cares where it's at, what it's doing. Uh, it acts in an appropriate fashion. Uh, John Piper said that love does not express freedom offensively. So love doesn't just go, ah, who cares? Whatever. That's not, that's not loving. That's, that's offensive. That's rude. Uh, rude is a kind of, uh, and, uh, it's an outrageous behavior, right? It's out of line. It's out of order, you might say. Uh, the, the Greek word for uh, rude literally means out of shape. It's the word schema, where we get the word schematic, like a plan, right? So like a shape. And this is saying love is not out of shape. It's orderly. It's fit, right? And the Corinthians, if you've probably remember, if you remember this book so far, uh, they got quite the problems. They're, they're very rude, right? If you remember going to the Lord's Supper with us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what did they do? They would just literally get drunk. Well, I'm coming hungry. Well, too bad we already ate. Okay. Like they're very, at the Lord's Supper, they're very rude. Uh, they had men and women in their gatherings rejecting roles and just acting rude, right? This is full of it. First Corinthians 11 and, and the Lord's Supper says this, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. We're, we're, we're here for it together. Well, I'm not. <laughs> they're just rude people, right? They were thoughtless. They were careless about those they gather with. One commentator said this, that love does not elbow its way into a conversation, a worship service, or a public institution in a disruptive or discourteous way. Uh, a pastor once taught on, maybe remember the, uh, the parable of the talents, right? Where they bear their talents and you ought not do that. And after teaching on the talents, one member of the church said, you know what, pastor, my talent is to be, um, to say just what I think when I think so. The pastor said, that is a talent definitely worth bearing. So may we not be that way. Uh, in our modern language, we describe people like this. Well, they just speak, they're, they're just very blunt. Or uh, oftentimes we'll say, you know, they, they mean well. They, they meant that well. But here the apostle is saying, that's not just meaning well, that's just unloving. It's actually wrong to act that way. Think of God's love towards us. God's love is not rude. It, his love is attractive, isn't it? God's love is... Well, it's lovely, it's, it's comely, it's attractive. Something about it, it, it draws our hearts and our eyes to Him. God's love is not just empty word, it's, it's not cold, it's, it's lovely. It's overflowing with love in the triune community, right? Ephesians 2, 4 says that God has a great love that raises from the dead in Christ. We read of God's everlasting love and His steadfast love. Psalm 36, verse 7 says this, how precious is your steadfast love. So God's love isn't just, oh, it's loving, it's, it's beautiful, it's attractive, it's, it's polite and kind and good, right? Even just God's love itself is those things. So God is not only love, but His love, again, is precious, it's lovely. 
Friends, your God is the one who, who will one day wipe away every, every tear from your eye. That's a loving love. That's beautiful, isn't it? Every tear, you're not just, oh, I love you. I mean, it's intimate and soft. It's the love that melted our hearts to love and that awakens our affections, isn't it? The love of Christ is beautiful like a diamond. It's sweet like honey. It's bright like the sun. It's radiant. It's not just, well, it's there. It's attractive, isn't it? So how then can the aroma of our dispositions, the way we live, our tone of speech especially, the way we treat others be any different? How can we fail to have a Christian etiquette in the world? Friends, we must have a Christian flavor to our love. The way we talk, our tone, the way we carry ourselves, how we find ourselves in certain contexts must not be unbecomingly. It must be lovely. It must be attractive, right? God cares that you do say the right things, but you ought not say it like a jerk. That matters certainly, I think, more. How you say it is important. Friends, isn't it good news that behind God's love in this word for you, he doesn't have a tone? Yeah, you're okay. Everlasting love, it's never that way. Aren't you glad it's not with a, a, an expression or a disgusted face? It's lovely. It draws us to him. So may we as Christians do what Ephesians 4 says and speak the truth in love, a kind love, a, a polite love. Secondly, love does not insist on its own way. Verse 5 again. This is perhaps the core of all friendship strife, all marital difficulties, all church discord. Uh, everyone's favorite enemy is Mr. Self, right? Uh, Paul says love is not self-seeking. It doesn't insist on its own way. Uh, this is the greatest problem that we have that we are born with, right? We come into this world knowing pretty much one word automatically, and it's mine. Mine! Little kids, mine, right? No offense, little children, but that's what we do, right? We like self-help, self-esteem, and we take a lot of selfies. We love Toby Keith's song that says, I want to talk about me, 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 me. That's how we are. We love ourselves. Mr. Self lies within us. He's, it's our flesh, right? We are all born worshipers, servants, slaves, and lovers of ourself. We'd be taught to share, not to take, right? But the Bible clearly says this, that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You should love him with all your heart. God must be your God, your king, your ruler, and your treasure. And yet, do you remember the first temptation of man in the garden? It was questioning God's word, but do you remember what, what they thought, what they were told, what Satan said? You can be like God. You can, be, you could, you could, worship. You could be worshipped. You could be served. And that's what self is. It's, we worship ourselves, right? Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, there's a proverb you should have. Nail it to your brain, just in general. This is a good one. Proverbs 14, 12 says this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. The way to death, so self, doing what self loves, doesn't just seem right. I mean, it literally feels good, right? It doesn't ever feel bad. Like, I'm taking care of myself. I hate this. We love it, right? We love self. But the way to death, friends, to love self is the death of life, Death of relationships, friendships, health, communities, cultures, you name it. If you want to see a culture die, just teach everyone to love themselves and they will die. 
This is a greater plague than any sickness in the world is the love of self. The problem with the love of self is the death rate is 100%. The infection rate is also 100%. And it's very contagious and very, very easy to get because we all have it. This is why the radical mess of, of Christianity is so difficult for us to hear. I want to read you what Jesus said in two passages that you are hopefully familiar with, but I hope they are jolting and they are shocking words. Uh, Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. John 12, 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So Jesus tells us, run from yourself. Ditch yourself. Unhitch the trailer and just leave yourself. Go, run away. Deny yourself. This requires you to do, to repent, right? To do a U-turn. You actually, you have to turn from your sins and trust in Christ. Jesus came not just to save our lives, but to change our life. He's not just a Savior. He's also Lord. So we cannot just have his cross and not his crown. You can't just have his saving blood and not his rulership, right? You need to be a Christian loves Christ and loves his rule, right? That's, that's the difference. We must come under the yoke of Christ, the lordship of Christ. We must give him, as I've said before, we must give him the master key to our own house. Here's a question that I hope you have that you're asking. This is, a, this is a, an important question. It's a difficult question. How do I go from loving self to loving Jesus? How do I do that? Because that's very hard. It's extremely difficult. How do we do that? From self-love to self-forgetfulness. Isaiah 42, verse 1. This is, so this is what God says. What does God say? I'm glad you asked. Behold. So look, right? When the Bible says look, you should look, right? Behold. My servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. Now, we know that that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So God says, look at my son. I chose that one, him. That's my son. My soul delights in him. I want to give you a, a, a million reasons why Jesus Christ is meant for us to look upon and to love. I hope you'll hear. He's the pearl of great price. He's the treasure worth selling all for. There is no sun in heaven. The light of the lamb, his glory is the light of heaven. He is the heaven of heaven. Jesus Christ is the radiance of the father's glory. Angels cannot look upon him. Demons flee from him. All things are created by him, through him, and for him. He holds the universe in the span of his hand. He holds the breath of every creature. He has all authority in his hands. All nations are but a drop in the bucket. All men are like grass. All things are his servants. Christ governs the governments. He establishes kings. He tears down kingdoms. Jesus makes poor and makes rich. He ordains all things. He rules all things. He orders all things. He is infinitely higher than all, yet descended infinitely lower than all. He is the lion and the lamb. He is mighty and mild, fully sovereign as God, fully subjected as man. Timeless, yet he died. Eternal, yet he aged. Self-sufficient, yet self, yet became dependent. Omniscient, yet learning. Omnipotent, yet growing. Giving life, yet raised to life. He hungered, yet he fed thousands. He thirsted, yet he exclaimed, Come to me and drink as the water of life. 
He was tired, yet he gives rest to weary souls. He prays, and yet he hears prayer. He weeps and puts an end to weeping. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces, yet he buys back the world at the cost of his life. He is weakened and wounded, yet cures every weakness. He defeated death by dying. He crushed Satan by suffering, removed sin without sinning. His resurrection is permanent. His ascension is powerful. His intercession is perfect. Jesus Christ will forever preserve his church, protect his sheep, and purify his people. His power is boundless. His mercy is bottomless. His grace is matchless. His knowledge is limitless. His wisdom plentiful. His provision bountiful. His wrath is powerful. His judgments are truthful. His majesty is incomparable. The beauty of Christ is unfading. His life is unending. His promises are enduring. His love is everlasting. Jesus Christ is holy, holy, holy. There is none like him and none above him. He is your Lord, your creator, your king, your God. This is your Christ. Jonathan Edwards said this, Real Christians do not first see that God loves them and later on find out, oh, he's lovely. They first see that God is lovely, that Christ is excellent and glorious. Their hearts are captivated by this view of God. And their love for God arises from this view. Hear this. True love begins with God and loves him for his own sake. Do you hear what Edwards is saying? We love God, not because what he does for us, but because of who he is. That is true biblical love. Isn't that astounding? Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the gospel is Christ laying down his life for others. So friends, why do you have marital strife? Why do you fight? Maybe, so when Kelly and I first got married, we had a lot of stupid fights, as you probably did. This is what happens. You fight over that cap of tooth. You squeeze the toothpaste from the middle. It's war, honey. Those towels are on the ground again. Do you know that? Your socks are near the hamper, like right next to it. Just put it in. Why do we have those dumb fights? Because we're selfish. You ask me to do it, I don't feel like doing it. I want to put it on the floor, right? Because we love ourselves. You have friendship problems, you have church discord. All these things stem from loving self. Now, we are very, very good. We say, well, I'm just stubborn. I'm just stuck in my own ways. No, you're just not very loving. You're selfish. The Bible says, I'm just selfish. I live for my own kingdom. So friends, by grace, we must walk by faith in God's word. God's kingdom, God's rule should invade your kingdom, right? If God was a conquering king as he is, and you were a small army as you are, if he conquered you, he would overthrow you, sit on your throne, and your kingdom would be gone. It'd be his kingdom, right? Your little people would live under his rule. Well, that's how Christians are to be. We're supposed to be overrun by God's kingdom, and now he reigns, sits on my throne, and leads my life, and I just do what he says, right? We must not live for our kingdom, but for Christ's kingdom. So a Christian is. So what kind of marriage would you have if you lived this way? What kind of church could, you, could we be? May our names, our preferences, and our desires die so that Christ would be exalted. That's, that's our goal, isn't it? Nothing else. That's our goal. That's my goal. I hope that's yours. Lastly, or thirdly, love is not irritable. Uh, 
I'm trying not to laugh too much, but this, this thing about this past today, uh, this week, driving to work, I laughed multiple times. I'll tell you why. Uh, some texts say easily angered. Some say uh, not provoked uh, or irritable, right? Um, usually when you see a commercial on TV for like this new medicine for usually something weird, you know, uh, and it says, uh, you take this medicine, this problem will go away, right? And then what do you see? People skipping down the aisles, right? They're in stores laughing. Hey, good to see you, right? They're throwing footballs around, right? And then they say, there's some side effects though. <laughs> One is, you know, you have, sure your tummy will feel better, but you're going to be really irritable. You might feel good, but you're going to sin. Don't you think it's funny that we call irritability a medical side effect? Uh-oh. It's not what God just said, right? I mean, could, be, could taking tummy medicine, could that make you irritable? Sure. Problem saying that. Could not sleeping well make you irritable? Sure. But is it, is it the medicine's fault? Oh, my tummy medicine make me irritable. I'm really mad today. Sorry if I sin. No. You're just irritable. You're just sinful. Your heart's just, a, your heart's the problem, right? Being irritable is something that we do. It's our heart, right? We act irritable because we are sinful, not because of our personality or Enneagram number. It's not because of that. It's because of me, because I'm sinful. It's my heart. Irritability is a sinful condition. It's unloving. It's easily provoked. That's sinful, right? Or often, here's, what, here's the other thing. So either it's our, our medication, you know, my tummy hurts. I'm really irritable today. Uh, or we say, that guy just gets under my skin. If he wasn't here, I'd be fine, right? You guys don't do that, do you? It's, it's sin to lie in church. You know that, right? We all do this, right? So that guy, he breathes so loud. Calm down. Stop sitting there. You know, when he's around, he just bothers me. His existence bothers me, right? That's irritable or easily provoked. Guys, that's just evil, isn't it? I do, my heart does that. Man, if they weren't here, if I hear another thing of this, that's wicked. That's selfish, right? Jesus was not easily provoked. When he was scorned and slandered, he did not retaliate with a response, right? He was quiet. He, just, he took it, right? He, he didn't lash out, right? Jesus is not easily provoked. Now, it isn't wrong to be angry at the right things, right? But it's wrong to be easily angered, to be constantly annoyed, right? You call them a nag. Or when someone asks you another question, you go, what? I mean, what? Right? That's irritable. But not so with the Lord. God's anger is not explosive. It's not untamed. It's not unruly. God governs his emotions. He has control over his anger. So does Jesus. Ah, pastor, slow down. Jesus got angry, right? We're getting there. So here's a question. What do our emotions tell us? Do you guys have emotions? Do you ever emote? You probably like emojis, don't you? Don't do that. What do emotions communicate? They communicate what you value. They communicate your treasure. So what did Jesus get angry about? Jesus, you look a little bit irritable. Calm down. What are you angry about? You may remember he chased people out of the temple. Angry, like not just kind of like, oh, I'm frustrated. Angry, get out. Chase them out, right? Listen to what, in, what John chapter 2 says about that episode where Jesus chased people out of the temple. Listen to what Jesus did. John 2, 15. 
Jesus made a whip. I'm not much of a whip maker. However, I know that it takes a long time. You can just throw it together and just hold it. You have to weave it, strand it, make sure it's lengthened, right? So Jesus' anger was an explosive. It was calculated. It was slow. It was controlled. John 2, 17, two verses down. Jesus says this. Well, they comment about Jesus doing this. This is what he did. Zeal for your house, his father's house, will consume me. So what was Jesus' anger about? Well, it wasn't about self. It was a godly anger. It was mad about the things that God would be mad about, right? It was mad about sin. It was desiring, it was zealous for God, for God's glory and for what God's word is. In Acts 17, we see the same with Paul. He's walking, and it says this. He's walking into a into this town, to the city, and he says that, Luke writes this, Paul's spirit was provoked, right, within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So Paul is provoked. He's frustrated. He's angry, right, because there's just rampant idolatry. It's not a selfish anger. It's God does not like this. I don't. It bothers me, too. That's what Paul's doing. Matthew Henry said this, if we'd be angry and not sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. And yet, friends, much of our anger is not godly. It is not calculated. It is not righteous. Instead, we are all easily annoyed at nothing. We are easily bothered by either sinless acts or small sins, aren't we? We call it, we are touchy, right? Sensitive. You gotta walk on eggshells around them, maybe perhaps around you. Thus, our emotions, our provoking, our irritability is telling us what do I value? What is it? What's telling you? Well, I value me. You're bothering me. You're annoying me. I can't hear my show. I'm tired of being asked that question. I want my space. It's irritable. What, what do you value? Well, yourself. That's what I do. We're easily annoyed by things that are often not sinful, and yet things on TV that are sinful, we're not bothered by at all. We are quick to be angry for our own sake rather than for God's sake. So ask yourself this question. Are your irritations, are your provokingness, are they God-pleasing or are they self-pleasing? Does your love for Christ cause you to lose it on your husband every now and then? Do you blow up on your wife because you love Christ so much? Brothers, may it not be. We all have anger in our heart. May we not blow up sinfully. It is foolish. It's always that guy driving slow in traffic. It's not our fault. It's their fault. May we refrain from those things. In Christ, God's holy anger met our unholy anger on the cross, and Jesus bore them both. So your sinful anger, it's been removed from you. In Christ, there is no condemnation. It's gone. And God's anger for you is likewise removed. So may we walk and have biblical control over our emotions. Our faith must fuel our feelings. That's the key here. Number four, love is not resentful. Oh, if only that was a side effect of tummy medicine, wasn't it? I'm resentful. I had a bad lunch. The ESV says resentful. Uh, your text probably says, I think, the best wording. It's actually what the literal Greek says. It says it keeps no account of wrongs 
or not of wrongdoings, which is, that's being resentful, but I love that phrase. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love does not keep score, right? It doesn't take notes of the wrongs done to me, nor does it keep account of the things I've done for you. There's no bookkeeping involved in this. There's no tally marks. There's no resentment. We are all by nature history tellers, aren't we? You know what that guy did to me? Oh, let me tell you. Watch out for him. Mm-hmm. We know all the history of all those who offend us, and we remember it to the T. I recommend this strategy if you want to have a miserable life. Constantly keeping a mental record of every wrong ever done to you and always thinking about it. If you want to be miserable, I recommend it. Friends, I don't want that for you. I don't want you to always be simmering, always remembering what someone's done to you. Doesn't, doesn't resentment cause bitterness? I can't stand being around that guy. 55 years ago, you know what he did to me? <laughs> when I was five in the crib, you know what he did to me? It's nonsense. Bitterness is like drinking poison, it's been said, and hoping that that person dies. Oh, I hope you die. But I'm drinking the poison. It's just foolish. But here, friends, love does not keep a record of wrongs. So here's a question. Maybe, maybe you've heard this phrase. I want to hopefully be helpful. Have you heard the phrase, forgive and forget? I'm sure that you have. Should Christians do that? Tough one. I think the spirit is true of that, but I think we, it's nearly impossible. Let me explain. I think it is nearly impossible to look at someone and not think of something they've done to you. It's just natural. You have memories, right? I hope so. You remember things. We're not dumb, right? We know what happened to us. We remember stuff. It's okay to have memories and thoughts. Things are okay. However, it is wrong to charge them to their account each time you see them. Does that make sense? So your memories of someone should be less like a, the cover of a book and more like a footnote. Yeah, I mean, they did that, but it's not the point, right? That's what it should be like. Our heart should be so loving, so patient, so gracious that we easily absorb, we discount what they did to us, we forgive those who sinned against us. And what is our motivation? How do we live in such a way? Friends, if there's anything dwelling upon in this text, it is this for eternity. This is why you're a Christian, because of this reality. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 says this, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, hear this, and not counting their trespasses against them. Do you hear that? You were saved because God did not count your sins against you. Just let that sit for a second. He can look at you and say, I know everything you've ever done. But in Christ, every single one is not charged to your account. It is charged to Christ. He is imputed, he is counted, he is charged with another sin that he never did, and imputed with the wrath that you, that you earned to himself. Jesus was charged with billions and billions of sins that all those who would trust in Christ would commit. He suffered, he paid, he bore the penalty for them, which is the wrath and curse of God. And because of his resurrection from the dead, God can now look at you as a Christian and say this, I charge nothing against you. I don't see anything on your account. 
your account's great, actually. You're, you're a great debtor. You're great. You're out of debt. That's free. That's what we call justification. Romans 4 says this, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. So, friends, we are not saved by works. However, we are saved by Christ's work, aren't we? It's not our work, but it's his perfect life. If he wasn't perfect, it wouldn't be credited to us, and we'd be in hell. But Christ has a perfect life credited to us. The empty hand of faith turns it, lets go of our merits and our works, and grabs hold of Christ by faith and says, I want that. Don't give me me. Give me that. Don't judge me off that. Judge me off of Christ. I want plagiarism. Give me that all day. I want that. Give me that. That's what you want, right? God is only pleased with the merits of Christ. If you remember at Jesus' baptism, what did the Father say of his Son? With you, I am what? Well pleased. You have that. Are you aware of that? When you sin, when you're angry, when you lust, when you don't love the Lord with all your heart, God can look at you and say, well pleased. Because of Christ. Charles Spurgeon, as usual, said it best. He said this, when God accepts a sinner, he is in fact only accepting Christ. He looks into the sinner's eyes and sees his own dear son's image, and he takes him in. So friends, let us treat others in such a way that we don't count their sins against them. Instead, we pray for them. May we not look at them with guilt, but look at them with the way that Christ sees us. That's the gospel. It's hard to hate someone when you're praying for them. So may Christ rule our hearts in that way. May God give us spiritual amnesia. Remember, you do anything to me. It's all right. May God grant us that. A forgiving heart, a tender heart. Lastly, love rejoices with the truth. Look at verse 6 as we close here. Truth is ever important. It actually matters what we believe. Truth is objective and unchanging. And therefore, in life, our love and loving must be led and determined by truth. Uh, I don't know if you guys like to watch political stuff. I hope that you don't. I'm just kidding. It's okay if you do. But uh, it drives you nuts after a while. But maybe you've heard this catchy phrase. Uh, it's very cutting, and it's actually very true. It says this, that facts don't care about your feelings. Do you know that phrase? It's pretty common. It's kind of edgy, cool, right? I think it's pretty true. The reason why it's cutting is because we live in a world where feelings matter more than reality. What you feel matters more than what you are, right? Well, I don't feel like I'm in the right sex. Well, you're not. Clearly you're not. Well, I don't feel like I should do that. Well, you probably shouldn't. Don't feel this is right. Well, then it's probably not. It's not what reality is. It matters how you feel, right? But not so with the Christian. Instead, truth must filter our love. Truth must decide what we love and how we love. Alistair Begg said we must have a truth that loves and a love that is truthful. In the scriptures, we see that truth and love must be married together. They are inseparable. If the Bible binds them, may we never untie them. And we read here that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. One commentator said this, that the attitude of our mind towards sin is a great test of the truth of our religious feelings. Jesus said that he is the way and the what? The truth, right? So truth matters because Christ is the truth. So how can we as a Christian claim the name of Christ and love sin? Well, you can't. Whether our sins or the sins of another, we cannot both treasure Christ and treasure wrongdoings. If God cannot dwell with sin, neither can the true Christian. We must ask ourselves, would I rather be opposed to my friends and family and culture or opposed to God? 
That's the question, isn't it? Jesus is the standard of truth. We cannot truly love him and love sin. Jesus will not be shared. He will not be split between two hearts. He will not be severed in half. We cannot love sin on the weekdays and love God on Sunday. It is just impossible. Paul asked this, How can we who are dead in sin still live in it? So as a pastor, I need to just lay a question out, just be up front with you. More of a charge, really. If you're living in unrepentant secret sin, leave it. Run as fast as you can. Put it to death. It doesn't matter what it is. Put it to death or it will kill you. Be reconciled to God. Repent of your sins and trust Christ. It doesn't matter what it is. Christ will redeem it, but you must run from it. Charles Spurgeon, as usual, has the best way to explain it. Oh, sir, if I had a dear brother who had been murdered, what would you think if I valued the knife that crimsoned it with his blood? If I made friends with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart, surely too I would be an accomplice in the crime. Sin murdered Christ. Will you be friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? Being a Christian will make you opposed in the world. Do you know that? You will be hated. You will look like a fool. Because the world loves things incorrectly. I'm going to give you four brief charges, then we'll close. As Christians, we cannot support or love any LGBTQXY+, whatever it is. You just can't. Love is not love. It's just not. It's just not how it works. It's evil. There's a way to love things wrongly. We just can't. It's unloving to promote what God detests. We, we, we can't before. We must speak the truth in love. As Christians, we cannot permit, practice, or approve of cohabitation before marriage. No exceptions. Jesus says to cut off your hand lest you go to hell with two. We cannot simply just let things go when it comes to our marriage. Well, I'm just tired of him. He's bugging the heck out of me. It's unbiblical. Unbiblical divorce is not okay. doesn't matter if it's good for you. It's bad for God. It's unloving to not say, brother, what is going on? What are you doing? What's happening? As Christians, we cannot rejoice at abortion or be sorrowful when Roe v. Wade fell. Do you think God was sorrowful when he struck down Simon and Gomorrah? Of course not. Lastly, in our churches, in our denomination, friends, we cannot simply wink or let sin go by. The Bible calls us to expose sin so that it may be forgiven and repented of because those are good things. Those are good things. And my, my hope, my plea is as a church we can promote holiness, flee from sin, please. Together we can reconcile, we can love sin, expose it to the light. That's our job. Speak the truth in love because biblical truth matters. So lastly, as a question, do we value God's truth above everything else? And we love it together. Change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Let's pray.